hear the word of the Lord from Zephaniah 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Paul Ramsey. It's a joy to be with you. Um, if I haven't met you yet, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I'm so glad the Lord has brought us together like this today. Uh, as we continue our uh, series through the season of Advent, we've been in a series based on the prophets, several of the prophecies, these promises of the coming of Jesus and what Jesus would come to do. Today, we come to a prophecy from the book of Zephaniah in chapter 3. Zephaniah is a really interesting book in the Old Testament. Uh, Zephaniah, to give you a little bit of context for where this came in the history of God's people, you may be a little bit familiar with the history of ancient Israel. Uh, in about 1000 BC, King David was on the throne and God told David on account of his sin that the kingdom would be divided. A few generations later, the kingdom was indeed divided into the northern kingdom, known as Israel in many places, and the southern kingdom, known as Judah. And so we have Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And over the story of the Bible, we read story after story of God's people rebelling against God and God sending judgment. And then people repent for a moment and then turn back to their wicked ways and then they get the judgment of God. Eventually, God gives uh, this crescendo in his warnings of judgment. He says, I'm going to send the nations to destroy, basically destroy these two nations and cart the people off into exile. And this does happen. In the 700s BC, the northern kingdom is invaded by the, nation, the kingdom of Assyria. And then in, 500s, in the 500s BC, the southern kingdom is invaded by Babylon. Zephaniah comes in between these two judgments. He's a southern prophet, a prophet of Judah, and he is sent by God to the southern kingdom, warning them that just as the northern kingdom has been invaded in an awful invasion and destruction, so too will God send judgment on the southern kingdom. And Zephaniah gives one of the most vivid pictures in the Old Testament of the coming wrath of God. But he also gives one of the most beautiful and wonderful pictures of the coming restoration that God promises after his judgment. This is really interesting. That's a little bit of context and background into which this wonderful passage of the Lord rejoicing over us with singing comes. comes at the end of this warning where God says, I'm going to send a nation to come and judge you, and it's going to be awful. So with that said, uh, there's this 
extraordinary scene in The Lord of the Rings, which you may be familiar with, uh, where Frodo and Sam, it's in the second book or second movie, uh, The Two Towers, where Frodo and Sam are these two little hobbits who are tasked with carrying the ring of power to, I was about to say Mount Sinai, to Mount Doom, uh, <laughs> to Mount Doom to see the ring destroyed and evil will be vanquished. The evil Lord Sauron will be defeated. Uh, and Frodo is the one who's carrying the ring and it's this heart-wrenching scene that comes one of the most amazing speeches in the Lord of the Rings, the, where Sam, Frodo's loyal companion, gives this speech to Frodo and says, there's still good in the world worth fighting for. It's this moment in the journey where Frodo is weighed down by the ring and they're in the middle of a town that's being ravaged by orcs, which is the bad guys. And F Sam finds Frodo and sees that he's all right, but Frodo spins on him and then knocks him over and has his blade at Sam's throat because Frodo's lost his mind. He's, dis he's distraught. The war is too great for him. And there's this moment of tension where Frodo is holding the sword at Sam's throat. And there's silence. The, 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 mu the music stops. Everything stops. And all you can hear is Frodo and Sam breathing. And then eventually Frodo comes to his senses and collapses. And he looks at Sam and says, I can't do it, Sam. And then Sam gives this extraordinary speech. I have it here, I won't read the whole thing. But Sam essentially says, Mr. Frodo, we must keep going. And Frodo says, well, what are we keeping, what, what are we even going for? And Sam says, there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. It's like in the great stories, the ones that really mattered. And he goes on to say, the heroes had repeated opportunities to turn back, but the thing is, they didn't. We can do this. It's this word of hope. It's a picture of Frodo facing the darkness and having lost sight of the goal. Sam asks him, he says, do you remember the, the taste of strawberries, Frodo? Because I can't even remember what they taste like. But into this moment of despair, Sam speaks a word of hope. In our passage, we come to a promise from God of what a commentator named Elizabeth Achtemeyer calls almost unimaginable joy. The word almost is critical. Here is a people who has gone through the ringer and they brought it on themselves. They're in the moment of darkness where it doesn't look like it's gonna get better. In fact, it's gonna get worse. But into this moment of darkness and despair, God, through the prophet Zephaniah, speaks a word of hope that's almost unimaginable, but thankfully it's not unimaginable. It is only almost unimaginable. Despite all the temptations we face to hopelessness and despair, it's wonderful that this vision of peace and restoration is not actually unimaginable, that there is good worth fighting for, that there is hope that makes endurance worth it. This is a hope that's in every one of our hearts. And like Frodo, we all need to be reminded sometimes. And it's my prayer that that's what God will do for us through his passage this morning. And so the gospel is a message of hope that speaks of an almost unimaginable joy. And as we open this passage together, I think we're going to see three things. We're going to see a word of comfort. We're going to look at the source of comfort. And we're going to look at, thirdly, the path to comfort. The word of comfort, the source of comfort, and the path to comfort. So let's begin where the passage begins in verse 14. It says this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So to begin with, we immediately see that this passage is a passage of celebration. Coming at the tail end of a warning of judgment, it's a picture of relief, a word from the Lord that says it's time to celebrate, which is interesting. Um, why would we celebrate in the face of coming judgment? 
in a way, celebration in the face of difficulty is something that we're familiar with. Picture, um, uh, you know, coming out of suffering. Picture the ships that returned with soldiers at the end of World War II sailed back from Europe. It was a whole different group of people that went there in the first place. Many of their comrades had died. Each of the soldiers was deeply and profoundly impacted by the war they just fought, but they came back and it was a picture of celebration of a battle that's been won, peace that was secured, something wonderful that's been accomplished. And what is it that the people here are to celebrate in light of? In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15, why are they to celebrate? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now, God's people knew, uh, uh, God's people were a people that knew suffering. They were not strangers to suffering, to the effects of living in a vicious and dangerous world where the strong take advantage of the weak, where those in power use their power for selfish ends rather than for the people under their own authority, where enemies cause great pain and loss and death and fear. So you might expect a word of comfort to be something along the lines of, don't worry, your suffering will come to an end. But that's not the first thing that God says. Here's the thing, though there is great suffering in the world, this suffering is a symptom. It's not the root problem that needs to be addressed. Suffering will come to an end, absolutely, but that's because the problem that sits beneath suffering will be dealt with. The deeper problem is rebellion against God. The deeper problem is the problem of sin. Whether your own sin or the sin of others, whether directly or indirectly, all suffering in the world, according to the Bible, is the result of sin. God created the world and everything in it to operate in accordance with his creative design and laws and purposes. And when something within this created system breaks from the original pattern set by God, it causes ripples of pain and suffering. This is essentially the, world, the, the warning that God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. Now, it'd be one thing if it was a poisonous fruit, but Adam and it wasn't a poisonous fruit fruit. Adam and Eve didn't get immediately physically ill when they ate the fruit. What it was is it was a rebellion against God that threw off the way that God intended for things to work. And it's fair to say that the ripple effects of that first sin, that first sin remains the first cause, in a manner of speaking, for all of the suffering and death that the world experiences. God created all things good. He created them with order. And he revealed that order to us. But he also gave us freedom. And we can choose to break from his good law. The problem is that the consequence of that is suffering and death. But suffering and death is not where the story ends. This is one of the extraordinary things about the Bible and one of the amazing things that's right here in this passage. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Because of the sin present in the world, God has rendered judgment but there's something profound that this passage touches on, which teaches us about God and his purposes. God's purpose in judgment is not primarily about punishment, but about purification. God's purposes in judgment are not primarily about punishment, but about purification. Some people look at the Bible and conclude that God is somehow this angry, punitive figure. That he's like a hawk looking down from heaven, waiting for people to commit sins, and then rendering words of judgment and condemnation. It is true that God's anger can be kindled and that evildoers will be punished, but, or, or, sorry, and it's also true that there are some who fall under God's judgment and who will not come out saved. Back in verse 11 of Zephaniah chapter 3, we're told 
by God that he will remove from our midst the proudly exultant ones. There are some who in their pride will not turn to the Lord to receive salvation. But this is not the full picture of God that we're given in the Bible. Instead, we're given a picture of a very patient God whose ultimate aim is redemption and restoration. As a dad, I find myself often giving consequences to my kids. Um, I love my kids. They're wonderful. And they're also learning what it means to grow in maturity and love and kindness and, and generosity and so forth. And sometimes they cross the line and get consequences. But here's the thing. I don't enjoy giving consequences. Something that kids might grow up, you, you, can't, kind of, you can't wait until you're in a position of authority because then you can tell people when they've gone wrong. But that's, I, I don't enjoy giving consequences. I'm also I'm a soccer referee. I've re I haven't refereed in a few years, but it seems like when I referee soccer, some of the people I referee with seems like they became referees to blow the whistle. They love calling fouls. <laughs> But as a referee, the point of the game of soccer is not fouls, it's goals. I consider a game to be a good game the less I blow the whistle so that it can be a, a wonderful game that can be played. Time and again in the Bible, God's people are referred to as his children, and God does not delight in punishing his children. He delights, rather, in seeing them grow and mature in their love for him and their love for one another. That is his goal. Because of our sin, for God to raise us up, to purify us, necessitates judgment that leads to mercy and salvation. And that's what we see here. God has taken away the judgments against you. You are forgiven. See, whenever there's a, whenever there's a story of conflict, the climax of any conflict is the moment in between the I'm sorry and the response. If you put yourselves in the, in the shoes of a person who has done something wrong to someone, and then you apologize and you say, I'm sorry. That is the climax of that conflict. What is the response of the offended party going to be? Is it, that's not good enough? Is it, mm, I'm not ready to forgive you? Is it, I just can't forgive that? Or will the response be a word of forgiveness? That's what this passage addresses. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Come to the Lord who has forgiven you. Sojourn, don't miss this. To understand the kind of joy that we see here, the kind of joy that Zephaniah calls us to, we must understand our plight. We must understand what it is that we're being relieved of. To look a bit closer at how God's mercy is described, in verse 15 we read, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. There are two particular observations I want to make here. First, we see a connection between internal and external elements of salvation. Here's what I mean. The judgments against you personally are related to the judgments, uh, to the enemies that are around you. The evil within, your sin, is connected to the evil without your enemies. And we should be careful not to overinterpret this, to say uh, all suffering I experience is because of sins that I've committed, but the Bible's teaching regarding salvation is not compartmentalized. God's people are to look to God for both external and internal salvation together. In other words, regardless of where your pain comes from, regardless of what you're struggling with, whether it's an external circumstance or an internal problem of sin, God's salvation brings relief 
from both. Whatever the source of your conflict is, external or internal, both of those things are what God desires to bring salvation from. And so it's important for us to engage with both, not just the difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves, but the issues within our own hearts, the sins that are within us from which we need deliverance. That's the first observation, the connection between external and internal deliverance. The second observation here is that it's interesting that Zephaniah doesn't tell us who these enemies are. In this passage, it's just God has delivered you from your enemies. He's removed your enemies in general. We know from other prophets at the time that this was Babylon. Zephaniah knew that this was Babylon, but he didn't include that. Um, and the reason for this, I believe, in line with a number of commentators throughout history, is because Zephaniah wants the focus not to be on the enemies, but to be on God and his people and what God is doing in his relationship with his people, which brings us to the key issue of sin. Sometimes we talk about, or oftentimes I should say, we talk about the problem of shame, that sin causes shame. The conscience accuses us and leads to a certain amount of misery and inner pain. And that is one of the key issues that sin brings us into. But that's only one part of the problem of sin that needs to be dealt with. In fact, it's not even the main part. Listen to how Alec Moitier puts it. He says this, It's one thing to deal with sin within the sinner so that the conscience no longer accuses. This is the guiltiness of sin. It's a different thing altogether to deal with sin as it outrages the holy character of God. This is the offense of sin. And it constitutes a deeper and more necessary work for there can be no salvation until God is satisfied. He adds that God's presence in your midst is the objective verification of his inward satisfaction over his people. So with that in mind, we can see why verse 15 is so extraordinary. This is a message of salvation. God promises to his people that there's coming a day when he will take away the judgments against them and will dwell in their midst. The offensive sin against a holy God will be dealt with by God himself. And for us today, as we look back on this promise, we know exactly how God accomplished this in sending his own son for our sake. This is the message uh, regarding salvation that Jesus came to secure for us. Jesus took the judgment of God for our sake so that God could take the judgments away from us so that we might be left with forgiveness and with God's loving presence. So now we can understand why this is a picture of shouting and singing of exuberant response to the mercy of God. Last year, Lindsay and I had a chance to go to a, a Passover Seder with a friend of ours, with a friend of mine who's a, who's a Jewish rabbi. Um, and we went to the Seder and we were struck by how celebratory it was. There was singing and shouting and clapping and games and pranks. And it was, it was, there was a lot of laughter. And we were struck by how oftentimes we neglect the celebratory aspects of our faith as Christians. Of course, it's important for us to be sober and reflective to quiet ourselves before the Lord, to consider our sins and the lengths to which God had to go to save us from our sins. There is a time to be somber, to mourn. There's also a time for feasting and celebration and joy. I'm so glad that we had a children's choir this morning. I'm so glad that we sang Christmas. Yes, can we one, one time, children who sang, can we one more time say great singing? You who sang, all of you, all of the hard work that you guys put in helped us as a whole church to do what God says in his word, to sing praises to him, to rejoice in what he's given us in Jesus. So thank you. 
I'm so glad that we did an Advent caroling gathering. I'm glad that we're doing a cookie exchange before our Christmas Eve gathering. As many opportunities, opportunities as we can to celebrate and to smile and to feast together ought to be an aspect of our worship. Again, this isn't a forbidding of being somber or of personal days in our own lives that are sad or slow. But if your whole life is void of elation in God's mercy, then I wonder if you truly grasp the mercy of God. Now you may say, it can be terribly hard to celebrate sometimes. What about this thing that I'm going through? The response I'd give you from the Bible is this. There's no contradiction between suffering and joy. The Bible is honest with respect to pain and suffering. And it is okay to experience and to own the pain that you experience. But there's no contradiction between whatever you're experiencing and the joy that we have and the mercy that God showed us in Christ. What there is also in the Bible is that there's no category in Scripture for the joyless Christian. Rejoice and exult, verse 14 tells us, with all your heart. This isn't a show up to a worship gathering and then leave and then go back to whatever, uh, uh, whatever mourning that you were a part of or whatever grumpiness that you've been a part of. This is a rejoice and exult and embrace the joy that it is to be forgiven by the mercy of God. So what does it look like for you to celebrate the mercy of God? Do you know this kind of joy, this kind of relief at being forgiven? It'll probably look different from person to person because we've all got different temperaments. There's, you know, you picture the person for whom everything is a celebration and the person for whom very few things are cause for celebration. But this kind of joy and rejoicing is different from either of those things. This is a kind of joy, a joy and rejoicing that unites God's people regardless of your temperament. And uh, my mind goes to a, an old friend of ours, an older man, um, who uh, no one would describe him as the, the life of the party. He's for lack of a better way to put it, just has a hard countenance. It's really hard. I've seen him smile maybe three times in, in our whole friendship. He was very, I mean, generous man, um, very kind, uh, but not someone would consider to be an excited person. But I remember watching his face in worship and watching tears stream down his face as he is enraptured with the mercy of God. Regardless of your temperament, there is joy friends, that comes with experiencing the mercy of God. So do you know the depths of your sin? Don't be afraid of plumbing those depths because the deeper you dig into an understanding of your sin, the deeper your grasp of the mercy of God will become and the greater your celebration of praise will be. In our passage, God declares mercy on his people. And this is what the picture of celebration is based upon into a moment in which God's people are in darkness and they don't really know the extent of what's coming, but they know that it's going to be bad, bad. God gives them a word of hope and comfort. This is not for your punishment, it's for your purification. Because I, there's coming a day when I will take away the judgments against you and you will be with me and I will be with you once again. That's point one. To understand the season of Advent which points us to a joy that we receive at the arrival of Jesus, we must understand this word of comfort that comes from the Lord, that he has promised to give us his mercy. 
We're invited to rejoice in his mercy, to savor it, to celebrate it. The passage continues, however, and it gets even better. Why does God engage with us in this way? Listen to what God himself is looking forward to. Listen to how God feels about us. Let me read verses 16 and 17. It says this, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is how God feels about us. And at the heart of this passage is this statement, the Lord your God is in your midst. It's worth noting that God being in your midst is not always a good thing. We just, received, we just finished a series through the book of Hebrews and towards the end of the book of Hebrews, just a few weeks ago, we learned that our God is a consuming fire. So whenever we see this word that the Lord your God is in your midst, the first question that we ought to come to is what kind of presence is this? Is this God as the consuming fire coming to consume us? Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And all God's people sighed with relief. He's coming with salvation. But there's more. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God is described here as the mighty one, which invokes, which is an image in the original language that thinks, calls to mind God as a divine warrior, this cosmic conquering king who is returning to his people with a declaration of peace and joy. No more battle cries. The battle has been won. All that's left is shouts of joy, words of intimate love, songs of peace. One writer calls this verse, verse 17, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a wonderful verse. It's the gospel in a nutshell. This is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This gives us the reasons for salvation. It talks about God's deep and inner joy and satisfaction in his people, and it talks about God's power to save. The question that this brings us to, I think, is what is your picture of God's face? What is your understanding of God's countenance as he considers you, as he considers us, as he considers his people? If it is anything other than this picture, then it's wrong. God's desire is not to remain aloof from his people, to write a check to forgive a debt and then say, away from me. In the core of his being, God is love, and this is his sentiment toward us. Looking ahead to verses 18 through 20, the promise of God is to gather his people together. The word gather is given three times in those verses to emphasize the fact that God wants to get us together so that he could dwell in our midst with us. God's purposes in the world have at their heart taking up his dwelling place with us. Isaiah 62 says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Revelation 21 at the very end of the Bible says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will be thrilled to be with us. 
We began this morning by considering a word of comfort. And now the text brings us to the source of comfort, God himself. And listen to the words of his pleasure. Listen to what he's planning to do. The one who receives our songs and praise himself becomes the singer. And consider how beautiful this picture is. The picture of God quieting us by his love is a common picture through the Bible that's kind of like a mother bird hovering over and calming her young. We can't possibly, we could not possibly think of a God like this ourselves. This is, as the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians 3.19, truly the love that surpasses knowledge. This is a passage that we read and we see the God of the universe delighting in me, delighting in you. Who chooses to delight in me? What kind of love and grace is this? Now, that doesn't mean that everything that I do somehow becomes acceptable, but it does mean that God has placed his covenant love upon me, upon you, upon us. It is, I will love you, not I will love you as long as you are lovable. It is, I am covenanting to love you. There is something very deep about someone saying, I will love you, come what may. Will you love me as long as I'm beautiful, insightful, and funny? No, I will love you regardless of whether you are or are not those things. Many of us are only used to being delighted in because we have brought a deliverable that is worthy of delight. But that's not this God. This is a God who has set his love upon you because he loves you. This is a father who is just delighted to be with us as his children. We're not simply given a word of comfort from a father who is removed. We are given this word and then pointed to the source of that comfort, God himself, who is delighted to be with us. Just last week, I was listening to a story, a heart-wrenching story of a mother with a daughter who struggled with addiction. And the pain that this mother has endured over the years of trying to pursue a relationship with her daughter, ensure that her daughter is safe, trying to draw near to her and be helpful to her. And there's this one moment as she was describing what it was like to drive across the streets wondering if her daughter is even still alive. And then she sees her daughter on a street corner, alive. And the feeling that she has of relief of just knowing that her daughter is still alive. There's something that I learned about love when I became a father that it's very difficult to explain. The love I have for my daughters means that I care deeply what they do, what decisions they make and so on. But there's nothing that my girls could do that would make me cease to love them. There's never going to be a moment in my whole life, no matter what happens, when I won't be delighted to simply be with them. Think about these people. Think about God's people receiving this word from God. They're sitting in dust and ashes. They're hearing a word of a coming judgment. Of course Babylon is going to come. Of course God will send them to judge us. We've blown it and we keep blowing it. But then they receive this word. At the height of things falling apart, wait, what? God sees us like what? God sees us as children who he wants to restore so that he can be with us, with me. I mean, I know me better than any of you and I'd like to keep it that way. You mean to tell me that God wants to be with me? That's exactly what this passage is saying. So to you in here who may be struggling with your worth, look around and wonder why you're unlovable. Let me cut that off at the knees right now with words of scripture. 
on account of what Christ has done, God is here with us in our midst. He is a mighty one to, to save. His desire is to rejoice over you with singing, to quiet you by his love, to exult over you loudly. To personalize this for a moment, for all of us, picture you're a little girl who's performing at a dance recital or a piano recital or a soccer game or a little boy who's competing in his first wrestling match or a football game or performing in a play. Now I want you to picture this little girl or boy's dad. First, let's say the dad is disinterested with a look of mild aloofness, waiting to see whether or not he's going to be impressed by your performance. How does that make you feel as you're performing? What is your level of enjoyment in what you're doing? Now, let's say your dad is beaming at you with a look of love and pleasure, and you know that he is delighted to watch you do what you're doing just because it's you're doing it. What is your level enjoyment of enjoyment in what you're doing this time? How do you feel about yourself in this situation? Now, sometimes parents don't do a very good job of communicating to their kids how they feel about watching them do what they're doing. But our God tells us exactly what we need to hear in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This passage makes it difficult for those who would try to simplify Christianity to a set of moral teachings or a, or a set of instructions to pursue wisdom. Sure, there's moral teaching in Christianity. There are words of wisdom in the Bible, but the centerpiece of the Christian message is not a teaching that is to be internalized, but a personal God whose desire is to be in loving relationship with us. That is the heart of Christianity. This is the source of our comfort. Not that you can earn God's pleasure, but that he delights in you as you are because he's done it all for you in order to gather you along with the rest of his people into his arms, enjoying intimate fellowship. This is how God describes himself to us in the Bible, a father who delights in us. Which brings us to the third point, which is, I think, an important question. How do we get into this pleasure of the Lord? We know that while the offer God makes of salvation here in Zephaniah is for the whole world, we, we also know that some will not receive it. What is the path to this comfort? How is it that God could take pleasure in me, in us? How is it that we access and enjoy God's pleasure? Well, there's another place in the Bible where we're given a picture of God rejoicing that I think is illustrative for us as we look at this passage, as we consider that question. There's a picture of God rejoicing in heaven before the angels. It's in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells three different parables and the, and the statement that kind of ties the three parables together is, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So one of these parables is a parable that you are probably familiar with. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. The story of a wayward son who rebels against and abandons his father. And then he comes to his senses, he comes to his senses and he decides to come back to apologize and just ask for a position among his father's servants. And I want you to picture God's people hearing Jesus say this. Picture this God's people at the time of Zephaniah who knew that they had blown it, that they had squandered God's promises. They're hearing this parable and they say, yes, that's us. We are that prodigal son. We've squandered what God's given us and we're hoping to just be allowed to be servants 
in God's kingdom. That's what the prodigal son does in the parable. Is he, he plans to come back to apologize to his father, but he doesn't expect to be restored to the family. He just wants his father to give him a job among the servants. But in this parable, one of the most powerful moments, I think, in the Bible is the moment where you're wondering what the father's response is going to be to his son. The father sees his son coming, and he hikes up his robes, and he runs out and hugs him in tears. And he says, let's throw a party, because my son who was lost has been found. He's home. This is God's countenance towards us. To those of us who are aware of our need and our sin. God is not an angry God with his arms crossed, shaking his head at you. He is a father scanning the horizon to see his son or his daughter coming back to him so that he can hike up his robes and run out and greet us and, and throw his arms around us and rejoice over us with singing, quiet us by his love. Shout loudly in exuberant joy over this sinner, these sinners who have come back to me. Of course, this is where our passage ends. Listen to what Zephaniah says about who God is coming for. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Those of you who suffer reproach will no longer. At that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcasts. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune, says the Lord. Here's what God is telling us will happen. God will draw near to the needy and he will meet every single one of their needs. Every particular need will be met with its particular solution. Those who are oppressed, those who are mourned, those who suffer reproach, those who are ashamed, those who are lame, those who are outcasts, every particular need will be met with its particular solution. Nothing will keep a person away from the saving work of God. To look at just two of these statements in a bit more depth, to see how this is going to work, uh, God doesn't just explain away. These, don't just, these, these words don't explain away those problems and say those are nothing. He talks about each of those problems being transformed. Take shame. Notice that shame isn't explained away. Just don't be ashamed. No, shame is turned into praise. How will that happen? God will deal with it. That's how it will happen. And that shame, what was once shame, will be a cause for praise. Thinking again about an addict, several addicts, several people who have struggled with addiction, who are in recovery, who I respect a lot, always tell their story. You know it's not missing from their story? Their addiction. In fact, it's a centerpiece of where God met them and how God delivered them and how it has become their source of praise. God will turn their shame into praise. Or take the statement about God saving the lame, just as a second example there in verse 19. There's a contextual note that might help us understand what this would have meant to those who were lame, those who had physical uh, uh, inabilities to travel to Jerusalem. Because at this time, there were pilgrimage feasts that happened several times a year, and there would be people every single time who wouldn't be able to make the journey because they were lame. They weren't strong enough. There was something that prevented them from making this journey. And so they're, they're hearing about this restored Jerusalem, this restored Zion, and they're like, well, I guess that's not for me because I can't make it. If only I could make it there. And this is God saying to the lame, no, your ailment is not going to keep, <laughs> nothing will keep you from my love. 
we're given a clear picture of the kind of person that God is coming for. If we look back at verses 11 and 12 of Zephaniah, if you've got your Bible open, I can, I can read it for you if you don't have your Bible open. We're given some helpful context for this promise. On that day, verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But, verse 12, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So I will remove the proud, God is saying, and I will leave the humbly. And this is what God promises to do in verses 18 and 19. I'm coming for those who mourn for the humble and the lowly. These are oppressed, the lame, the outcast, the shamed, the, the, the ashamed. These are not the strong. These are the weak. This echoes forward to the ministry of Jesus. Do you remember how he opens his Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the righteous, the strong, those who have conquered. That's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who mourn. Who is God coming for? He's coming for the needy. He's coming for the brokenhearted and the poor in spirit who bring to God only their need and then wait. All of this, back in verse 8 of Zephaniah 3, God had begun this whole section by saying, wait for the Lord. This is what the Lord will do. So who are we given here? We are given to people who are needy, who are waiting for God himself who will do it. I will, I will, I will. This is how the passage ends. God has set his love upon us and he's promised to restore our fortunes before our eyes. The question is, where are you on this list? Advent, Sojourn. Advent is an opportunity for us to humble ourselves, to engage in this season of waiting, to quiet our souls, to move our hearts from seizing what we want to waiting for deliverance, salvation, and the ministry of the Spirit in our souls. To reflect upon our true need, set our minds on that, and bring those needs before the Lord. Because it is in the moment of crisis and despair so often that God does his deepest work in our hearts, teaching us the true meaning of faith and dependence. So as I move to close, I think this passage makes three clear invitations in summary. We looked at the word of comfort. We looked at the source of comfort. We looked at the path to comfort, which is the way of humility. And I think there are three particular encouragements that this passage would make to us in light of these three ideas. Number one, we are invited in this passage to rejoice in the mercy of God, which means that we're invited to consider our sin and bring it to him for mercy. Where do you need God's mercy? Knowing that you can trust, a God, trust God to meet you in your place of need, take your time and investigate God's mercy specifically for you. It may take some time in waiting. It may take examining yourself. It may take putting yourself in humility and vulnerability before others. There are profound realities in the quiet place of longing and the gap that exists between us and our Father that lead us to the kind of joy and praise when we realize that God has crossed that gap for our sake. So number one, rejoice in the mercy of God. Number two, enjoy God's pleasure. We cannot read this passage and come away with any picture other than the fact that God delights in his children. 
his great desire is to rejoice over us with loud singing. The question is, do you know his pleasure? What might it look like to create space in your life to allow him to show you his pleasure? To speak words over you through his word in the quiet place of prayer and of longing? What might it look to actually receive and enjoy his mercy and experience the prodigal father running to you and receiving your confession, showing his pleasure that you're simply back in the fold? Enjoy God's pleasure. And then third, and finally, we're, we see in this passage, I think, an invitation to embrace our need. Embrace your need, Sojourn. You are a needy person. When was the last time you told someone that? When was the last time that you asked for a specific prayer for an actual felt need? What is humiliating to you? What's something that you don't want anyone else to know, but that you know about yourself, that you could share with another person and say, this is an area of true need. We're in a culture that's not very good at acknowledging our need because we are supposed to be successful. But the picture that we're given here is the picture of a gospel that's foolishness to the world. We worship a savior who looked conquered, but it was that act of humility when he took the cross for us through which Jesus turned the whole world upside down. So what might it look like to embrace your need, to bring that before him, to receive mercy? I don't know where this message lands on you this morning, but God does. And he wants you to hear a word of hope and joy, a word of love and pleasure. Maybe you're in a moment of utter despair like Sam and Frodo. Maybe the muck around you isn't a war, but it's just a season of distraction or disinterestedness or discouragement. Maybe your struggles with physical health have taken a toll on you. Whatever it is that you need, consider the almost unimaginable joy of this passage and come to him with your needs. Sojourn, may our needs be turned into joy at the coming of our Lord this Advent season. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your word for us in Zephaniah chapter 3. Thank you for coming to secure salvation for us, Lord Jesus. For the tradition of the church to celebrate Advent year after year, to remind us, especially in such a fast-paced culture, that waiting on the Lord is perhaps the most important thing that we can give ourselves to. Lord, I pray that you would captivate us with a true picture of your countenance toward your children. I pray for those of us in here who don't know your pleasure. I pray that you would show every man, woman, and child in this room your pleasure through your son in each one of your children. Help us, Lord, to grow in faith as we hope with yearning for your second coming when all evil that remains will be done away with. We ask for our good, for your glory, in Christ's name. Amen.